0: Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Today we are focusing on Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. We are at the point in Acts when Paul and Barnabas have just returned from their first missionary journey into the Roman Empire. They went to the island of Cyprus, modern-day Turkey, and the province of Galatia. The key cities that Luke especially told us about were and Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and uh, Derbe. And each of those cities, if there was a synagogue, that's where they started. They would would address the Jews and the Gentile God-fearers who were there by speaking of what was written in the Law and the Prophets and the Old Testament. They would speak of how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of a coming Messiah. They would speak of how the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem rejected Jesus and handed him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. And they would speak of how he then rose from the dead, just like the prophets said that he would. Then they would speak of the fact that it was through faith in Jesus Christ that a person could be forgiven of their sins. It was through faith in Christ that a person could be justified, could be made righteous before God. There would always be a number of people who would believe and become disciples of Christ. But there were also people who would be actively opposed to the gospel message. And they would do all they could to stop Paul and Barnabas from even speaking of Jesus as the Christ. In Pisidian Antioch, the Jews instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. In an Iconium, an attempt was made to mistreat and stone them. Paul and Barnabas got word of this and were able to escape before they could do that. In Lystra, Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium traveled a hundred miles. To Lystra, with intent to continue their persecution of Paul and Barnabas, they succeeded in convincing the people of Lystra to join them in stoning Paul and dragging him through the streets of the, uh, of the city, uh, leaving him for dead. God raised him up so that he and Barnabas were able to continue their ministry, moving next to the city of Derby. It was in Derby that they, as they, after they finished ministering Derby, they began to retrace their steps and revisit each of those key cities. They were intent on strengthening the souls of the new believers in each of these places. They helped them organize churches to that end. They helped them appoint elders to give spiritual oversight and leadership to those local churches. And then they returned to their home church in Antioch of Syria. This is the church that sent them out as missionaries and church planters. They shared with the disciples in Antioch of all the things that the Lord had done with them and through them and they understood that it was the Lord who was responsible for ultimately for all that took place. Well, Acts 14 ends by telling us that Paul and Barnabas actually spent a long time there with the disciples in Antioch once they returned. Well, that brings us to our verses for today, uh, Acts 15one to 12. Let me read those for you. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived in Jerusalem, They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Paul and Barnabas as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. These verses introduce us to what is sometimes known as the Jerusalem Conference or Jerusalem Council. It's a, really just a watershed moment in the book of Acts uh, and in the history of the church as a whole. It speaks of a subject that really has far-reaching significance. The first main point we're going to consider this morning is this. In the context of great rejoicing over the door of faith that had been opened to the Gentiles, a serious challenge to the gospel appeared. A serious challenge to the gospel appeared. While Paul and Barnabas were ministering, serving, and enjoying fellowship in the church at Antioch, some men from Judea came to town. Now, Judea could be a reference specifically to Jerusalem, or it may mean they were from Palestine uh, as opposed to Syria where Antioch was located they seemed to be men who had a regular teaching ministry of some sort so the things they were saying in antioch were likely things they had been teaching other places as well this was the teaching that had to be this was a teaching that had to be addressed and that was the purpose of the jerusalem conference but before we look at that challenge that they presented i think it'd be helpful to make sure we understand the context In which these things happened. So, what we see happening from several different perspectives is this the proclamation and reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ by sinners of all sorts is reason for great rejoicing. Reason for great rejoicing. So, first, we have already pointed out that Paul and Barnabas were gladly received by their home church in Antioch. They gathered together specifically to hear all that the Lord had done as they had shared the gospel in multiple places. Paul and Barnabas were eager to share and talk about these things. They gave special emphasis to the fact that the Lord had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This would be especially encouraging to the church at Antioch since it was largely a Gentile church. If you look down at verse 3, we read of what Paul and Barnabas were doing as they were making their way to Jerusalem for that council that was to be held there. They passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. They were speaking with the churches that existed in those areas. These churches would have consisted of converted Jews, Gentiles, Phoenicians, Samaritans, Greeks. But no matter what their ethnicity was, they were all rejoicing over what they were hearing from Paul and Barnabas. They were excited to hear about the expansion of the gospel. In verse 12, we see that as the believers in Jerusalem, that they were just in awe as they, as they heard Paul and Barnabas speak of the amazing things God had done, among, uh, done through them among the Gentiles. There was obviously, therefore, widespread public support for the ministry of Paul and Barnabas to the Gentiles. But there's more here than just public support. It goes deeper than that. These people who are doing the rejoicing are disciples of Christ. But they weren't always disciples of Christ. We're all born with a sin nature. We know that. We're all guilty of sinning against our holy God. We are all deserving of His eternal condemnation and judgment. Again, as Christians, we know that. We know that we need help. We know that we're not able to overcome all the problems that our sin against the holy God causes. In other words, we know we need a Savior. And when by God's grace we realize that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin when He died as a perfect sacrifice on the cross, when we realize that He endured the wrath of God that our sins deserved, when we realize that by faith in Christ our sins are fully paid for and that we are counted righteous before God, all that leads to thankfulness and rejoicing. And we also know that we are not unique in our need for a Savior. Every person... And the history of the world has been in need of a Savior. That includes all of our family. That includes all of our friends. That includes all of our neighbors. That includes persons in all countries. And because of the love the Lord has placed in our hearts, we want to see other people put their faith in Christ as well. So, of course, when these people heard of what God was doing through Paul and Barnabas and these other places through the gospel... They would rejoice in that. I was just, it's, it's always so interesting to me and helpful to me to hear whoever the person is who prays for the country they were considering uh, on that particular day. Today it was Laos. And uh, the lady who was praying, I mean, you said that there was just such an intensity in her prayer of really wanting her fellow citizens, her fellow Laotians, to be able to, know the gospel, and she pointed out several times, there are so many tribes in our country who've never even heard the name of Jesus, had no idea who he is. And you could tell she was burdened about that. She wanted that to be different. That's the same thing that's going on here. That's the same thing that happens. You understand because Christ has changed your life, and you know that that's something everybody needs. We all need that. There's no exceptions. So in the context of this rejoicing of the salvation of sinners, We see next that some Pharisees who had believed in Jesus as the Christ insisted that unless Gentiles were circumcised and observed the law of Moses, they were not really saved. So in in the midst of this rejoicing, teachers from Judea began to teach these believers. Specifically it says here, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved, you cannot be saved. So, I mean, to say the least, that's going to put a damper on your rejoicing. It would cause you to ask questions. It would cause you to wonder why Paul and Barnabas and the other church leaders hadn't told you about this. It would cause you maybe to doubt your salvation. It would cause you to wonder what you needed to add to your faith in Christ to make yourself a real Christian. In other words, it would cause you to doubt the good news of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone through grace alone. So this teaching had to be addressed. We see in verse 2 that right away Paul and Barnabas begin to confront and debate these teachers. The word translated as dissension uh, speaks of standing up and contending with intensity. So they were not backing down. They were not willing to compromise what they knew to be the truth. The issue was so crucial that the church at Antioch understood that this must be addressed as directly and as soon as possible. So they determined under the lordship of Christ to send Paul, Barnabas, and others to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles and the elders from from that church in Jerusalem. I think at this point it would be helpful to point out some things that Paul said in his letter to the Galatians here that are specifically pertinent. I mentioned last week that it was during this time in Antioch <coughs> that Luke or that Paul most likely wrote the letter to the Galatians that would include several of the cities that they had just ministered in. Well, in Galatians chapter two, Paul speaks of going to Jerusalem with Barnabas. <coughs> Some people think that he 's talking about their visit to Jerusalem, which was back at the uh, in acts eleven twenty nine and thirty That's when uh, Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem on behalf of the church at Antioch (coughs) to take an offering that had been taken up for them during the time of famine. Well, that's a real possibility that that's what Paul, uh, Paul is talking about in Galatians 2. Others think that it was this particular issue in Acts 15 that is what Paul was talking about. And I'm more inclined to think that Paul was saying what he's talking about in Galatians 2 specifically is focused on what happened here in Acts 15. So let me go and read for you what he says in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. (coughs) It says, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private, to those who were of, of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognized the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and to Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. We're not going to deal with, to deal with everything that was said in those verses, <laughs> but I do want to point out a few things. He says in verse two, Galatians chapter two, verse two, that the reason he went to Jerusalem was because of a revelation he received. Now, I think he's referring (coughs) to how the Lord directed he and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem through the spiritual leaders of the Antioch church. If you remember back in Acts 13, we see that this is what happened whenever Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their mission in the first place. The, the, The leaders of the church there in Antioch had gathered together. They were praying. They were fasting. And as they were praying they were impressed with the fact that Paul and Barnabas need to be set apart for ministry and sent out. Well, I think the same thing happened with this delegation that was sent out to Jerusalem in Acts 15. And Paul speaks of it as a revelation from the Lord because he understood that it came from the Lord because it came through the leadership there at the church. And if you noticed also uh, in Acts 15 verse 2, it says that there were some others who went with Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. Well, back in Galatians 2, verses 1 and 3, we see that one of those others was Titus. He was one of the co-workers, or would be one of the co-workers of Paul, who ended up pastoring the church in Crete. And of course, the book of Titus is Paul's letter to him while he was leading that particular congregation. Well, Paul points out that Titus was Greek and therefore had never been circumcised. He also said that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised by the leadership in Jerusalem, obviously because they understood that it was not necessary to be right with God like these other teachers were claiming. <clears throat> now when these teachers were saying that a person must be circumcised in order to be saved, they were basically using circumcision as like the entry point to being obligated to the, whole, to, to, to the law as a whole. In other words, Gentiles would need to become Jewish proselytes in order to be saved. So faith in Christ was not enough. They must add to their faith a commitment to the Mosaic law. Besides circumcision, I think they probably especially had in mind things like the feasts, food laws, temple sacrifices. And they seemed, and we kind of picked this up from things that are said in Galatians, they seem to be saying, speaking something of a ritual separation to be maintained between the Gentiles <laughs> and Jews. <clears throat> so let's consider the circumcision question a little bit. It's important to see this, that the pers- purpose of circumcision actually confirms the truth of the gospel. It actually confirms the truth of the gospel. The reality is that God is the one who instituted circumcision. Well, why did he do that? What did it mean? How did it change in the New Testament? Well, first I want, uh, we need to see this. Circumcision was instituted as a sign, as a sign of the covenant of promise made with Abraham and was to be performed on all the male descendants of Abraham. This promise had its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the Jewish teachers speak of circumcision in connection with the law of Moses, but in reality, circumcision went back to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God made some amazing promises to Abraham. I want to read to it uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, these promises have to do most directly with Abraham's physical descendants who would be the Jewish people. as a result of God's work through Abraham and these descendants, we are told that all the families of the earth, which is all nations of the earth, would be blessed. Well, these promises were confirmed again in Genesis 15 through a covenant God made with Abraham. And it becomes clear at that point that the way in which all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants is through the coming of the Messiah, as one being one of those descendants. Jesus, of course, was Jewish, and therefore was a descendant of Abraham. Well, 24 years after that initial covenant was made, God instituted circumcision, something of a temporary administrative covenant that was connected with the original covenant made with Abraham. And Genesis 17 is what speaks of that. Well, the Lord made it clear that the male descendants of Abraham were to be circumcised. This was because the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed was to be a male descendant of Abraham. So circumcision was a perpetual sign, year after year, boy child after boy child, just on and on, it pointed to the coming of the promised one. For hundreds of years it pointed to the coming of a promised one, until Jesus was born. But in both the Old and New Testaments, we see that circumcision was meant as more than just a physical sign. It also points to the fact that a person's heart needs to be changed. Old Testament New Testament as well speak of the idea that the need to be circumcised in heart, in a spiritual sense. Well, that's in line with the fact that we all need to be born again as as uh, Jesus spoke of in John 3. And it's by that new birth that we are in covenant with God in terms of the new covenant in Christ. Well, the Jews placed great emphasis on the need for their male children to be circumcised as a sign of being part of the covenant with God, and they were supposed to. That's what God said to do. So the Jewish teachers in Acts 15 are saying, even though the Messiah has now come, Circumcision should still be required to be a part of God's covenant people. Well, no, it was not still required. In the New Testament, a significant change in the meaning of circumcision took place. So second, we see this on your outline. Circumcision was discontinued as a sign of membership among God's covenant people in the New Testament. Circumcision served its purpose. Again, with every male descendant of Abraham that was born, it pointed to the fact that one day there would be a male descendant who would be the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. And it was in that descendant that people from families all over the earth, Jew and Gentile, would be blessed. He would accomplish the salvation that sinners, all sinners, desperately need. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that promise. So once he came into the world and accomplished salvation, there was no longer any need for circumcision to continue. The promised one that it pointed to had come. It's also in Jesus Christ that the new covenant became a reality. It was by his life, death, and resurrection that we are brought into fellowship with God. And it's because of the work of Christ That our hearts are changed or our hearts are circumcised. And it's by that change of heart that we're enabled to repent of our sin, put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So when we come to the New Testament, we see that circumcision is discontinued as a sign of membership in God's church. Now it's practiced for, for other purposes, which we're not getting into that. But it no longer has any spiritual significance. No spiritual significance at all. Well, you can see how the Jewish teachers might be confused (coughs) about the issue of circumcision. But we also need to see why it was of such great importance that this issue be decisively dealt with. So, our second main point is this. (coughs) The gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, must be carefully guarded. That message must be carefully guarded. Paul and Barnabas understood this. The leaders of the church at Antioch understood this. And the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem understood this. And to see how big an issue they understood this to be, we can see that there were three meetings. There were three meetings between the delegation from the church at Antioch and the brethren from the church in Jerusalem to deal with this serious challenge of the gospel. So, the first meeting is spoken of in verses 4 and 5 of Acts 15. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So, this first meeting took place soon after the delegation from Antioch arrived in Jerusalem. This appears to be something of a public reception for Paul and Barnabas and those others who came. And once again, they take the opportunity to speak of the amazing things that God had done with and through them. They would speak of taking the gospel, of course, to those multiple cities in the Roman Empire, spoke of going to the Jewish synagogues first, uh, to, to, to especially minister to the Jews and Gentile proselytes there. They would speak of how the Lord used their message To bring many to faith in Christ, they would speak of the churches that they were able to organize in many of these cities. And I'm sure they also spoke of the opposition they got from many of the Jewish leaders. And even in that, again, Paul and Barnabas were certain that God was with them. Well, at the conclusion of this report, those who were connected with the Pharisees gave a strong objection to what Paul and Barnabas were saying. And they repeat virtually what they had had people had said, that some of these same teachers had said in, in Antioch. They were saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Important to notice here, by the way, that these men who had, these were men who had believed that Jesus was the Christ. They were not rejecting that fact. They believed that Jesus was the Christ. So they're speaking as fellow believers, as best, as best you can tell here. But they were also greatly concerned at some of the things they were hearing. It was clear that Gentiles were being admitted to membership in local churches without being circumcised. They were not hearing any any emphasis on the Jewish feast and food laws and so forth. The Pharisees were, of course, known for their careful and meticulous focus on keeping the law. Well, after becoming Christians... They were still coming to grips, of course, with what this meant as far as their law-keeping was concerned. On the one hand, you can understand that they would have questions about that. On the other hand, though, if they're not willing to listen to what the gospel had to say about this, they had to be publicly corrected. These teachings had to be challenged. Well, in the second meeting that the delegation from Antioch had with the brethren from Jerusalem, it's not spoken of in Acts 15. That meeting is a private meeting, and that's what Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 2. So after this public reception and the objection from the Pharisaic believers, there was a private meeting between Paul, Barnabas, and those who were the pillars, uh, primary leaders of the Jerusalem church, of course, including Peter and uh, other apostles that were there. In this meeting, Paul presented the gospel That he was preaching to his fellow apostles, he presented to his fellow apostles the gospel he was preaching, and the elders of Jerusalem church to make to, to submit this to them. And well, Galatians 2 2, it says he submitted to them the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles. Now, Paul was not doing this because he was not sure whether he was right or not. These teachers had not caused him to have any doubts whatsoever. He was not doing it because he had was having questions. He was absolutely certain. That this preaching was from the Lord. He did this privately to make sure that he and the Jerusalem leadership were united on this important issue. It would not be wise to have questions come up between them when, they, when the public council deliberations were taking place. Because the true gospel was at stake. So this private meeting was to make sure we're all on the same page on this, right? It was after this private meeting took place that a third meeting happened. It's spoken of in verses 6 to 21 in Acts 15. We'll just consider the first part of this public meeting this morning, so I want to look, uh, look again at verses 6 to 12. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are, all, that we are saved through the grace of Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Saul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So, next point. We read here that God made it clear. God made it clear when he brought salvation to the Gentiles through Peter that all people are saved through the grace of Christ in the same way. So, verse 6 tells us that the apostles, which would include Paul and Barnabas, and the elders, who were the leaders of the Jerusalem church, came together to look into this matter in this public gathering. Again, they come together knowing that they are in full agreement with Paul and Barnabas and so forth about, about this preaching to both Jew and Gentile what that was, what that consisted of. We also see in verse 12 that there is a congregation of people who were also present. Well, I think this is most likely the congregation of the true Jerusalem church. And there was much debate going on on this issue. You get the impression each side had the opportunity to fully present their position. I would imagine it got pretty intense at times because of what a huge issue it was. Then Peter stood up and he spoke of the things that the Lord had revealed to him about this issue in such a very direct way. He doesn't go into detail here, but you know what he's talking about. He's speaking about the time when the Lord sent an angel to Cornelius, a centurion in the Roman army. Cornelius was told to go get Peter and have him come back so they could hear the message. Well, then the Lord gave Peter a vision that told him not to consider unclean the things that God said were clean. That was a reference to the Gentiles. So when Peter came to Cornelius' house and before his family, his friends, They heard what Peter preached, and they believed the gospel that Peter shared with them. They trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And in his speech here, Peter points out that it was a genuine saving faith. He said, God knows men's hearts. God knows his hearts when we don't always know. God knows the hearts of men, and he made it clear that their faith was real. You could say, to bring the circumcision language in here, he, could, he was testifying that their hearts had been circumcised. And he did this by causing the Holy Spirit, he confirmed this by causing the Holy Spirit to come upon them in great power, just like he had done with the Jewish disciples at Pentecost. So God made no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile in regard to being right with God. So if God had made no distinctions, what right did they have put stipulations on the Gentile believers. God clearly did not require that the Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians. So the demand these Jewish believers were making in regards to Gentile Christians was actually calling God himself into question. And this is what Peter is pointing out. They were tempting God. They were putting God to the test. It's as if they were saying to the Lord, we need more evidence from you in this situation. You haven't been clear enough. They were actually insisting on something that was clearly against God's will and God had already made that clear. And to do that was inviting judgment from God. The gospel was at stake in all of this. The fact that all people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, must be held firm. Now sadly, as I'm sure you're aware, this is not the only time the gospel has been challenged. <laughs> in every century since this time, there are people who profess to be Christian who try to change the gospel message. And there's all kinds of change we could list. I mean, people oftentimes attempt to dilute it, to dress it up in such a way that it won't offend anyone. I mean, it offends people to say, you're a sinner and under the wrath of God, and you deserve eternal judgment. Most people think that doesn't really build me up and make me feel good about myself. So, uh, so people will often sometimes will try to dilute it, to make it not seem so bad. Some want to take away the seriousness of sin. They may take away the fact that all sinners deserve the wrath of God. They really do not like that doctrine of the, uh, of the wrath of God being what sinners deserve or, that, or even what Jesus endured. and this, so, they take, so oftentimes people uh, will, will object to the fact that Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross. They may deny that the Lord would ever send anybody to hell. He's a God of love. Why would he do that? They may deny that faith in Christ is the only way to be right with God. The challenges just go on and on and on of people challenging the gospel. The good news of salvation by faith in Christ must not be compromised. It's the only hope. It's the only hope that any of us has to be right with God. Well, Peter closes his speech with these words in verses 10 and 11. He says, Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So in our final point, we see that Peter was saying that the gospel speaks of the divine mercy. Quote here by J. Alexander. The divine mercy exercised through the Lord Jesus Christ alone, contrasted with the heavy yoke of legal ceremonial bondage. The law of God reveals to us what God requires of all people. It was given as a covenant of work, so to speak, in which a person had to obey the whole law in order to be right with God. No one is able to do that. So the law ends up exposing, exposing how sinful we really are. When someone tries to be holy by being a good person, they always fail. Everybody fails at that. It's a yoke. It's a burden that actually holds holds a person in hopeless bondage. Peter points out, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear this yoke. He was saying, you know this. You've experienced it yourself. You may not admit it, but you know it's true. They all knew they had failed to obey God's law. But in Christ, there is a covenant of grace. Christ obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. Christ did endure the judgment of God. Um, that we deserve when you suffered God's wrath on the cross. And we receive, therefore, full forgiveness by faith in the resurrected Christ. We receive full forgiveness by grace because of what Christ has done. We receive a record of full and complete perfect righteousness, again, by faith in Christ. It's a righteousness that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That is a glorious covenant of grace, and they're like night and day between you have to be good to measure up with God or you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. They're saying we have to stand on that. We have to make sure that, that that gospel is clear. Now, the law is still there, of course, to display the righteousness of God to us. It shows how we're to live to please God. But our standing before God is not based on how we perform. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus. We believe that we and all people are saved, again, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be right with God. It's a glorious gospel that we have to guard carefully against all challenges. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing truth to us. I thank you for especially revealing and reconfirming to us the fact that we are saved by grace. Just, uh, just the, the example of here, of all the believers who were rejoicing, not just in their own salvation, but the salvation of other people that was happening all over their, their particular empire. They were just so excited about that. Lord, there's just something so encouraging when we realize that we have been saved by, by, by God's grace and that people we love and care for are people that we know are also saved by that grace of God in Christ. Thank you so much for that gospel. Help us to just never forget that. One of the things about our songs that we sing so often, so many times, so many of the phrases are meant to remind us of the glory of this gospel so that we will never forget it and never become old to us. We're going to be rejoicing about this for eternity. So, Lord, thank you so much for that gospel that you have made to become real to us if you're one who has never put your faith in Jesus Christ I would invite you to do that you're no better than the rest of us we all have sinned we have all failed to measure up to what God requires every one of us have done that a prayer like this will be a way to start Lord I realize that I am a sinner I realize that I have not measured up in any way to what I'm supposed to be some people see me as a nice person and that's fine but I know you see me as being unholy So I come to you as someone who is not holy, someone who is sinful. But I also come to you knowing that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I want Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want Jesus Christ as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make it on your tear-off or those who are following online can reach out to us through the website.